This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey listeners, Matt Davis here. I sincerely hope you're well. In this episode, I sat down to talk with Dr. Richard Aldrich. He's one of the best, and he's one of my favorite. And he's here at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Neuroscience. So what kind of scientist is Dr. Aldrich? Sometimes he's a structural biologist. Sometimes he's a neurophysiologist. Sometimes a biophysicist. Sometimes a molecular biologist. Or sometimes just a good old plain old neuroscientist. As is the case with many scientists in this field of neuroscience, including Dr. Aldrich himself, the experimental techniques that we use constantly are drawn from many different disciplines. Therefore, it can be hard to really identify what these scientists are. This identity seems kind of fluid. However, there are enduring qualities that exist throughout a career. In Dr. Aldrich's case, these include his strong leadership abilities and also very high standards for the quality of research, a point we can talk about in the end of the episode. So what kind of science are we talking about here? At the heart of many biological processes, there's conformational changes in proteins. That is, proteins going from one three-dimensional shape to another. In relation to this, Dr. Aldrich has spent a lot of time researching the properties of ion channels. What are ion channels? These are proteins embedded in the cell membranes and they're exposed to the extracellular environment, typically. You find them in neurons, in muscles, cardiac smooth and skeletal, and they're very important for the cell to talk to the external environment. So when a stimulus comes around, such as a neurotransmitter or a change in voltage, this can induce the conformational change in the ion channel, allowing charged particles such as sodium, potassium, or calcium to flow across the cell membrane. They can go in and out. This movement can lead to deviations in the electrical potential of the cell, which could lead to other cellular events, including action potential. Dr. Aldrich has worked on deducing some of the structural features of these ion channels. This is actually really, really hard, because they're super small, and they change conformations, as I mentioned, as they operate. How are you supposed to sort of take a picture of these tiny things that are constantly moving around? There are a few approaches, and the techniques have gotten better over the years, and these include X-ray crystallography and cryo-electron microscopy. I encourage you to do some Googling and some YouTubing and check out some of the pretty pictures that result from these techniques. Dr. Aldrich and I talked about his specific contribution to science utilizing these techniques. We also touched on some historical events related to neuroscience, including the friendly rivalry between the squishies and the crunchies, does that sound intriguing? Then I encourage you to leave your podcast player alone and continue listening. In fact, perk up them cochlea because it's time for my interview with the great Dr. Aldrich.
I'd like to start out talking about the large questions in your career you've tried to answer and in, in your lab work as well. What are the sort of general principles you're working under? What kind of questions do you want to answer? Okay, I, I think the best place to start is probably the overreaching general biological question. And, and that's how molecules, proteins, macromolecules signal different informative things. And the, the big question is, is how does the dynamics of a conformational change control the way a protein interacts with other proteins or some other way of signaling like it ways to open an ion channel or something like that. And, and the, essentially at the cellular molecular level, this is the general way that biology works. It's uh, something binds to something that causes a conformational change that causes it to do something else, whether it's to bind to something else or let current flow across the membrane. And so we've we've kind of addressed that by studying ion channels for the most part, which are a really great model system proteins to do that with. And that's because you can record their behavior at fast times, the times that are actually relevant for their biological function with really high fidelity and you can deliver stimuli in a controlled, rapid way. And they're particularly apt for doing single molecule measurements, which if they're done right, a lot more information than measuring over a whole population of similar molecules. And so there are a lot of aspects of that. And and a lot of what we're interested in is less basic. And so, uh, for instance, how does electrical signaling work across membranes? And that involves those basic principles, but it's kind of in the context of a more specific process that it could be like how do molecular motors work? How's muscle contraction work? And so the aspect of it that we have worked on mostly has been in how, how the control of you know, charged particles across the membrane generates and processes different sort of biological signals by way of changes in membrane potential, nerve impulses, and things like that. So you're really at the intersection of physiology, neurophysiology, uh, structural biology, biophysics, sort of under those domains. Yeah, and I actually have always been a little uncomfortable classifying what kind of a scientist I am. Why is that? None of those particular things really encompasses it, and they often imply things that we don't do. And uh, lately, I've been going with biophysics more than anything else. But there's been times that molecular physiology sounded right. There's been times that neuroscience sounded right. And, and I think you picked up on it right. It's really kind of at, at the conjunction of all of these things and, and has applications in all of them. But, I mean, one of the problems with being a, a, you know, classified as a neuroscientist is that you know, we're interested in a lot of things other than the brain. And uh, physiology, kind of the same way, that implies kind of a level of organization at the sort of tissue and organism level. And, yeah, you know, we've done things like that, but that's not what we're really trying to do. And 
molecular biology would probably be good, except that it's kind of developed to mean something different than that. And, and so I, I sort of just kind of randomly pick one of them when people ask me what I do, try and kind of guess the right context to tell them, and, which sounds kind of opportunistic and self-serving. You know, they want a neuroscientist, so I say I'm a neuroscientist. And then I think the, the disciplinary borderlines are so fluid anyway these days, and most of them come from divisions that happened a long time ago that don't really make much sense. And then there are trends, too. There's a funny thing. In, in the 80s, every physiology department in the country pretty much changed their name to have some version of molecular physiology. Because uh, that was hot, and, right? Yeah, there. yeah. So Stanford had a department of structural biology, and structural biology was just not cool at the time. So they, they were worried that they didn't get a lot of status. And they weren't drawing students, so they changed it to cell biology. And then after a while, structural biology got cooled again, so they changed it back. Great, yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of just kind of weird stuff that goes along with categorizing that I think in some ways doesn't, you know, it, it allows people to develop what their, where their fences are. You know? Sure. And, and I don't think that's always the best thing for science. Soon we're going to be the Department of Neuroscience and Optogenetics or something, you know, <laughs> yeah, like whatever's yeah, like right. really in. Yeah, and have, it, have an and in a department yeah, yeah. means you have a problem, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so I kind of want to talk about things from a little bit of a historical perspective. Where did we all start with studying neurophysiology? When were some of the foundational experiments and who were the, the key players involved? So I, I think that... The best way for me to, to answer that is to talk about it in the terms of cellular mechanisms of electrical signaling. Perfect, yeah. So there's there's a lot of neurophysiology that's classic and incredibly important that you know has to do with other aspects of, like Hubel and Wiesel's work on the visual system or you know Sherrington on motor systems and things like that. But But I think that the real founding part, and it's not to put down anything that came before, but everything crystallized with Hodgkin and Huxley's mechanism of the action potential, which I still believe probably is the most successful systems biology approach that's ever been done, even though it was done in the 1950s. And and that's because what they did was they, they took a complicated mechanism that was mathematically had to be described in highly nonlinear complex ways and they experimentally broke it down into its parts and characterized the parts and then reconstructed it all mathematically from the characteristics of the parts and to me that's kind of what systems biology does that and you know other people would disagree with that but I, I think it's a just fantastic illustration of the power of that kind of approach since then all of the important things that have actually come about that have changed the way we think about ion channels and electrical properties of cells have pretty much all been because of developments in new technology and Kenneth Cole's lab invented the voltage clamp. Hodgkin Huxley used it. Uh, the next several years had to do with applying it to things 
that were more complicated and experimentally more difficult than squid axons. Then the next big thing that really came along was uh, single channel recording, which allowed you to look at single mechanisms. And, and it was it was 25 years, not quite, you know, 20 years later. Uh, actually, that and uh, and a little bit earlier than that was the ability to record gating currents, which are the uh, electrical uh, uh, signals from the protein conformational changes themselves. Those both happened in the 70s and really changed things. Uh, along with the patch clamping came the ability to record under voltage clamp from small cells, which is, has been extremely important. And then... I think the next big thing that was really the molecular biology and that now you could actually get the genes for these things and manipulate them and make new channels with different properties and study them with the previous methods. And that was kind of in the, the 80s. And then the, the last thing that was really big, I think, was the, that when finally the structural biology started being successfully applied and that that's really difficult to do on membrane proteins it's still a whole lot harder although it's gotten more and more routine as time has gone on which is essentially uh figuring out the structure yeah from actually crystallography or yeah these days the hottest thing is uh cryoelectron microscopy which is completely revolutionizing uh structural biology and uh and so you know, each one of these has let you kind of look at things differently. None of them are really adequate on their own, but as they add to the types of information, and it's really been fun being around long enough to kind of go through some of those steps and and see how they change things. Uh, I don't know what'll be next. Cryo EM is going to be a, a really big thing, but you know, it won't have, I think, quite the impact that these other ones did in I mean, we already do have structures. It's just yeah. going to allow us to do some on things we couldn't do before. Yeah, and, a little bit uh, finer. Yeah, but there'll be something. And I, I think that we've yet to see the whole impact of bioinformatics. And and I think not everyone in the field would agree with this, but I think we're just barely at the point that molecular dynamics calculations and things like that are starting to tell us something. Uh, the calculations still take so long to do yeah. compared to the time scale the conformational changes are happening. It takes weeks to simulate a microsecond or there you know, at, yeah. at best. It, it's better than that now. But yeah. uh, I'd like to talk specifically about the things that you've done in your career. Did you find yourself changing as the technology and new developments changes and and the trends and, and things emerge? Yeah, Um so I, I started out wanting to go to college and be an ecologist or a field biologist. And uh, partly because at the time was ju- it was just beginning to kind of gel as a field. Uh, I liked the idea of the outdoors and stuff like that. And uh, You get to fly exotic I, places. Yeah, well, and I had all these romantic ideas about, you know, going around and recording whale songs and you know, stalking grizzly bears and, and stuff like that. And and then, you know, thinking about the environment, the environmental you know, awareness was just because... So it was, 
it, it wasn't out of line with a lot of trends that were going on at the time. Yeah. And in college, I, I, I got more and more interested in what I guess now would be sort of more global neuroscience type of issues. So I took every everything I could on in physiology and animal behavior and things like that. And I, I found that the mechanistic aspects of things like that attracted me a little bit more than the the environmental things and it's always been a good check for me when i when i make a choice between two different fields yeah. when i was in school if i choose if i happen to choose for whatever reason the pathway whose course was taught worst okay because i know i'm not being influenced by well i had a really good teacher that's a that. really interesting strategy yeah <laughs> yeah and it wasn't conscious it just yeah. and it's kind of a nice thing is that well, you know, I, I had I had a really fantastic desert ecology course. Yeah, yeah. I was I was in college in Arizona, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that everything in the desert's trying to hurt you, yeah, uh, it, it was a lot <laughs> of fun. Um, yeah, and I learned a lot. And yeah, the cellular molecular biology courses were yeah not so hot, and the physiology I is good. He's a good, nice guy professor that knew stuff, but he was a horrible teacher. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, didn't inspire you. Uh, no, but but I got interested. Then I went and worked in his lab and I did my first experiments on motor patterns in sand dwelling, sand burrowing sea anemones. Really? Yeah, and it was uh, yeah, that's that's what the guy worked on. And sure. And then the the interesting question is, how do you organize movement when you don't have ganglia or any central thing? You have a nerve net. Yeah. So this involves sort of putting suction electrodes on the tentacles of the enemy. Yeah. And trying to record the electrical activity and putting a force transducer on that was just kind of a, a hook. Mm-hmm. Like a tiny fish hook on a string, yeah, that could tell when they were contracting or not, and recording that. And so I, I kind of, I got to the point where I could almost do the experiments without screwing things up. And they started renovating the the floor up above us and with jackhammers and things, and the, you know the ceiling Recordings chunks or, were falling down. Yeah, right? yeah. And so uh, I kind of had to quit doing that. Sure, sure. <laughs> but that had got me interested in in. And something that was also in, in its real heyday right then was uh, invertebrate neurophysiology, particularly circuit-oriented. Yeah, stuff. was this around the time aplesia was getting hard? Yeah, it, it, it was actually the... Yeah, in fact, there, that was during the, the war of the squishies versus the crunchies. Oh, really? I, I haven't heard much about <laughs> yeah. this. So the yeah. squishies are mollusks. Okay. Because they were aplesia and melaby and uh, tritonia and these nudibranchs that people worked on. Yeah. And crunchies were arthropods, and sure. so there were people that worked on lobster, crayfish, and insects, and and they always, yeah, it, it was kind of a fun sort of difference. Uh, they didn't really fight with each other, but it was kind of a yeah uh, a good thing. And uh, and so I, that's what I thought I wanted to do when I went to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the other thing that I wanted to do was go to the West Coast, and there was a nice congruence of where a lot of that stuff was getting done was at West Coast schools. And so I applied to graduate school at uh, at four places, uh, the, uh, San Diego, 
Los Angeles, San Francisco, and uh, Oregon. Great, yeah. <laughs> and uh, West Coast. And back then, you know, it, it, you didn't go on interviews and get, you know, on boat cruises and hey, yeah. stuff like that. You, know, was, <laughs> you weren't wind and dined. Yeah, no, no, not at all. And so, but I did go to San Diego on spring break. And I thought, yeah, while I was there, I'd just go in and talk to some people and see what the program was like. And so I just kind of showed up and went into the neuroscience program office and said, hi, I applied. You know, can I talk to some people? And the administrator there was really helpful, and she lined up some things. I went around and talked to people. And at the end of the day, I uh, came back and said, well, you know, thanks for doing all that for me, but should I you know, have some sort of interview or something? And she said, what do you think you've been doing all day? I said, Oh, okay. Yeah. And, oh, great. Uh, that was easy. Yeah. And so that was the only place I actually visited. I hadn't even been to the other places. Uh, and it turns out it was the only place I didn't get into. And so Go figure. I, I figured that I certainly was a deficit to myself in person more than I was in, on paper. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah. So I ended up going to Stanford uh, and... Uh, and then the, the journey there was basically starting, uh, it got more and more reductionist to more biophysical questions as opposed to circuit ones. And, and that happened for several different reasons, but a lot of it having to do with the environment there is that the guy I was most interested in was a guy named uh, Don Kennedy, who was uh, really, he had done probably the most important work, or at least among the most important work on uh, escape responses and command neurons in, in crayfish. He, he was the crayfish guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Candel yeah. was the aplegia guy. And, yeah. you know, everybody had a guy. That sure. was, yeah. And so, yeah, and then they called me up when I, they accepted me. And they said, you know, hi, uh, this is, uh, you know, so-and-so. And I, uh, uh, you know, Said, want to tell you you're accepted and then I have a place for you in, in my lab. And I said, okay, well, I want to do invertebrate circuits. And he said, well, we do epilepsy and cats. And I said, okay, fine. Sure, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I went and I spent a while there. And then uh, uh, it turns out that uh, by various different influences, mostly of more senior students at the time, I ended up transferring into Kennedy's lab, just started doing some experiments, and then he quit and went to be the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner. It was when Carter had just gotten elected, I think, and mm-hmm. then and he was off to Washington. Yeah. And so the lab kind of struggled around, and we would, we would work for a while, and then he would have these phone calls on Saturday mornings when you'd go in and you got your chance to talk on the phone and yeah. he'd say, how are things are going? And I, I, you know, we'd say, Oh, okay, I guess. And he'd say, okay, let me talk to the next guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. Kind of like that. And then he'd come into town sometimes and we'd talk to him. And, yeah. Uh, and then, so I sort of slowly drifted across the hall to a, a guy who was an assistant professor at the time that worked on, uh, he was a squishy, mm-hmm. and, and he worked on uh, uh, pattern generation in a nudibranch called Tritonia that swam, and he was interested in what the motor control of the swimming pattern was. Yeah, it was pretty cool stuff. But 
what I ended up doing along with the postdoc was doing the more biophysical sorts of aspects of it. And back then you either voltage clamped axons or big cell bodies and sure, yeah. mollusks had big cell bodies and they had identifiable ones. So you could go into a ganglion and say, you know, I'm recording from R15 yeah. and you could see that every time and you knew which one it was. And so we ended up doing that on a, on another nudibranch that didn't have that interesting behavior, but it had good biophysical properties of its cells. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then that was kind of the beginning of, of what really I've done in some way or another ever since. Yeah. If I look back at it, it's been kind of a trade-off between what to me are the really cool questions like memory and attention and things like that versus ones that I feel like I could really address experimentally and say something about and i think everybody kind of finds their way along that spectrum Uh, yeah and and for me it's more down towards the the molecular end which i think actually offers a lot of very cool stuff i wouldn't argue that it's as interesting as how memory works but but i think we can sort it out a little bit more with the time i have to to contribute to something and so that's and we, we took a, a bit of, when transgenic animals came around, we took a trip back sort of up again towards higher level systems. And we made mice that knocked out genes for various channel subunits and did animal physiology on them. And, yeah. Uh, and the postdocs that came to the lab that knew how to do the mouse engineering you know, did a great job and it was fun for a while. And then when they left, they continued on and we went more back down molecular again. And, mm-hmm. And the new thing is that we've kind of moved away from channels a bit towards uh, calcium signaling proteins using spectroscopy Mm -hmm. mostly. And that's a lot of fun because we have a whole different way of looking at the same sorts of problems uh, involving gated conformational changes. Yeah. What sort of drove that shift to look at? It was actually by working on calcium activated potassium channels. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that calcium activated other things were also areas that we thought we could make a contribution to compared to what was known before with some of the methods that we knew how to do yeah uh, mostly being uh, fluorescent spectroscopy mm-hmm. and uh, and so we're actually doing more work right now in calmodulin than we are on channels but uh, and it's fun it's really interesting stuff when you started yale was your first teaching position uh yeah yeah when you started there, uh, what what did how did you initially start your lab and what? Yeah, that was you... a funny funny teaching environment. Too, yeah, because Yale Medical School doesn't have grades. Okay. And uh, and so hippies. Yeah, and what we had, to, yeah, hippies, which is in kind of non Yale. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, we had to write individual student evaluations for everybody that we taught, and we didn't have to teach much because it was kind of a more research oriented position, but. Uh, we had to teach in the neuroscience course for the medical students, and and uh, my job was to do a discussion section session where we taught the 
neurological exam for the cranial nerves. You know, how, what, what do you do to see if the 11th nerve is working right or the 6th nerve or something like that? Mm-hmm. So we had to learn all that stuff in yeah. the first place and, uh, and then teach it. And then we had to write evaluations. And so, you know, Henry came to class all the time and he was punctual and he seemed to learn how to do this stuff. He and knows what the 11th. I think he was just fine. And uh, it was hard to do that for everybody and make them sound individual. But that's kind of what we did. So it was weird teaching. Yeah. To start with. Uh, Research-wise, it, it worked out great because the guy I was working with as a postdoc became the director of a center there and hired me as a into assistant professorship job and let me continue using all the equipment and things I was using in his lab till I had mine. And so there wasn't much downtime right at the beginning. And it was, you know, understood between us that even though it was a regular, you know, assistant professor type job, that it wasn't something that I would stay with a really long time. And so we got up and going, you know, really well from that. And then after, I think, about a year and a half or so, you know, other other job openings started coming up. And so I liked the idea of going back to California. And so you know, I got offered the position at Stanford, so I, I went back there. And then there, we I had gotten a couple of grants at Yale for equipment that I could bring. So we still didn't have a lot of downtime in that kind of kickstart equipment-wise. was a really great thing that was yeah. uh, uh, just... I was really fortunate that he was, you know, willing to do that for me, and it yeah. made a lot of difference. And so we moved out to Stanford and got going, and and then I stayed there for the whole rest of the time I was there. I was chairman for a while, and uh, and then was you know there until moving here in two thousand six. Yeah, and so I was twenty one years there mm-hmm. uh, after I went back. Can you talk about some of the brag maybe a little bit, but the 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 bigger contributions you've made to the field. I know you've made a lot. Well, the, the one that everybody, I think, acknowledges is for the most was the uh, inactivation mechanism in potassium channel. And it was, it was really the timing was interesting. It was one of the first real uses of site-directed mutagenesis to actually understand a conformational change in a molecular basis and yeah there were other things at the time but i think our, ours was more direct mm-hmm. and uh the the key experiment i think of the whole thing was probably when we found the region that we thought was moving into the pore to close the channel and we could use molecular biology to cut it off and then we could make that peptide and wash it back in and even though it wasn't attached to the channel it could block it and at the time back then yeah, I think things were all, all of the manipulations were a lot harder. We, you know, there weren't easy ways to do PCR-based mutagenesis and things. So, and and we we were learning as we went along with it, relying really heavily on the more molecular lab next door. They taught us a lot of things, and uh, and we also, you know, were kind of limited in money, and we got to the time to do this peptide experiment, and you know, peptides cost a fair amount back then to get made, and, and we knew to do it right, we had to rule out that it was just sort of non-specific glomming on there, and that yeah. some other peptide, you know, wouldn't do the same thing, so we needed some control peptide. I, I decided, okay, let's, let's buy the experimental one first, and if it works, then we'll buy the control one and yeah, wait yeah. and see. So 
the experiment worked really nicely and then we designed what we wanted and then we sent off the order waited for it to come in and yeah did the experiment we all gathered around the rig wait to see what happened and yeah and it sure enough it didn't do what it you know was supposed to not do yeah did it have was there like a feeling in the room of yeah it was really great and so we we decided we'd call off the rest of the day and drive across the bay and go to one of the oakland a's baseball games but yeah that was fun and i I think the other thing that we really that, that i'm really proud of was a really thorough analysis of gating on the bk calcium activated potassium channels and particularly understanding the relationship between voltage gating and calcium dependent gating and i think our analysis was innovative and really thorough and we ended up with a a model that it's not all that complicated but it worked really well and and it's kind of caught on with uh other sorts of channels and uh things and people have used it quite a bit and uh I really like those papers, that whole series. And it involved sort of three different postdocs that worked at various parts of it that have all, you know, gone on and are doing more things now. Yeah. But it was a, it was a good time. And I, yeah. I really like the way that turned out. Where do uh, BK channels sort of fit into cellular function and what is their role? Actually, I think that in a whole lot of central nervous system cells, they're the main channel that's involved in the termination of the impulse. You know, Hodgkin and Huxley showed in squid axons that that was a voltage-gated channel, and squid axons don't have calcium-activated channels. Mm-hmm. And when these were have been studied now, I, I think it's pretty clear that in a whole lot of cells that... And back then we used to think that mostly what they did was controlled interpulse intervals and, and things like that. And this is not work that we've done. Uh, Bruce Bean's done some really beautiful stuff showing that it's uh, probably the main repolarizing current. But it does a whole lot of things and it's really important in controlling smooth muscle contractility. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of fun collaborative work with Mark Nelson's lab in Vermont, who does smooth muscle physiology. It's really interesting to, to see how the properties of the channel are tuned in a smooth muscle specific way in order to function well in a cell that doesn't have a lot of action potentials. And so you don't get the extra benefit of the voltage dependence because the voltage doesn't change a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a subunit, a component of the channel that's expressed in smooth muscle that moves the voltage dependence down to lower ranges so you don't have to, to get to such high voltages to turn it on. And then we knocked out that subunit, so which made them back like they normally are and yeah. saw what that did to, to the uh, contractility and it turns out it led to high blood pressure and uh, you know cardiac hypertrophy and things like that in a in a interesting sort of way. Is there some question that or topic that you haven't explored that you're really interested in? Oh yeah, there's lots of things. Sure. You know, there's and it's stuff I'll never do. I, there's some really what I think are really interesting sort of cell signaling issues that have to do with the small dimensions that are important for signaling within a cell, like a, a calcium nanodomain, you know, which is the, the volume that calcium is working in before okay. it gets bound up or pumped out, is so small that at the, the estimated calcium concentrations, there's only like about 50 calcium ions there. Yeah. 50 calcium ions in a you know, nanoliter so it gets to kind of break down the whole idea that you can talk about concentration 
Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you lose one of those and yeah. it's a 2% fluctuation. And, and so I, I think a lot of what we think of as using macroscopic quantities for determining cell biology is probably not really right, that we need to, to find a way to deal with these really small dimensions. And it makes things much more complicated because then uh, you can't just think about equilibrium. The time course of all of these things becomes important. And, and I think that a lot of cellular signaling is happening under dimensions and time scales where the fluctuations are really large compared to the mean. And people are starting to think about this, but it's been... Certainly. So you'd really like to account for all of the ions or molecules and exactly what they're doing. It would be really interesting to sort of get into the complicated math of all of these linked up, you know, networks of nonlinear processes that are driven by fluctuations and, and sort of figure out some general principles about it. And I think that would be easier to do. Well, I mean, it's not easy, but it's doable, but it's hard to know what to compare it to that you could measure at the sort of time and spatial resolution to be able to measure the fluctuation. But there are other things too, like I like watching from the side and think that if I was starting over again, I might have done, you know, retinal circuitry. Really? Yeah. I really like retina. Yeah. But, you know, I'll never do that either. Because it's so accessible and we, yeah, and we you know, know what the inputs are. you know are. what the inputs and the outputs are. I, that's why I really like sensory systems because yeah. who, who knows what's really going on in the amygdala. I, I would usually say hippocampus, but I get in trouble for saying that around here. Then those auditory uh, you know, neurons are really good. Yeah. Yeah. I know a really good auditory <laughs> neurophysiologist. <laughs> she happens to be sitting to the right of me. <laughs> yeah. How has being a member of the National Academy of Sciences affected you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, I get more emails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm on the editorial board for the proceedings, and that's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, but but I think that it, as much as it's it's an arbitrary thing, and it depends on a lot of politics and stuff like that, I, I think that I get more respect locally because of it. And that's kind of a good thing. I don't particularly deserve it more than other people who, you know, are not members of uh, there are many more people that deserve to be in that actually are. And then there's there's kind of a maybe more intangible idea that somebody else is, you know, the recognition that somebody else appreciates what I've done. And yeah. That, and, uh, and so that, that, you know, that's kind of a feel-good sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, do you feel sort of similarly about um, being HHMI previously? And uh, HHMI was a whole different deal because yeah. it was the resources were just phenomenal, yeah. and it really made a difference in how we did research. And, mm -hmm. and you know, most of it was good, but some of it there's some bad effects of having so much money. <laughs> really? Do tell. No, it, it, we would try things. Yeah. And trying things that you couldn't afford to do is a good thing sometimes. Yeah. That, yeah. that now you can afford it. Let's try it. But, but it led to a kind of a lack, not a lack, but, but it was really easy to not think something through really well and yeah. justify to yourself that you have it all under control before you do it. You mm -hmm. can just say, yeah, sure. That's a cool idea. Let's do it. Yeah. And and it was it was sort of wasteful in a way that way. Although 
you know, the ability to just try, try a crazy idea and then find something that works is, yeah. is a luxury, but a really, really good thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that it also softened us up a little bit where we weren't maybe quite as critical in the planning phases because we didn't have to make choices about do this or do this. We'd say, yeah, let's do everything. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And everything. I guess finally, um, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, that's that's a neat thing. Yeah, uh, it's because it's, it's really different, and yeah, I I don't go to the meetings of these things yeah. much anyway. But uh, the American Academy is is really cool because it really does bring together humanities and scientists. Yeah, in a, in a really neat way, and. Uh, and I, yeah, I was really, I was really glad to get inducted in the same class as Bob Dylan. Yeah, uh, you know, he <laughs> didn't awesome. show up at the meeting. Ah, uh, yeah. But Paul Simon did and sang a song at the induction ceremony. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, but but that's that's kind of cool, and it gives you a chance to sort of meet and talk to people like that. Uh, and the, what they do, the the things that they publish, uh, are very much sort of cross cultural science, humanities, business administration law and we don't get formal ways of doing those sort of interactions very much although you know the university promotes things like that but there there's always something more important that you have to do usually so i don't usually do those things but it it really is neat do you like that intersection of humanities and sciences and do you uh, I, I don't know if were... I like the intersection. I just like them both. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm not sure that the intersection, to me, provides special opportunities other than the ability for me to intersect with people from the other world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's fun because, you know, I really like music and spend a lot of time, you know, studying and thinking and listening and playing. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I read a lot of stuff. And it's it's nice to... To run into somebody who actually writes some of the stuff that you read and yeah, you know, ask questions and try not to sound like a dork and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of my earlier memories from when I first met you, you talked about uh, how you play the drums. And then uh, we learned you have an extensive and eclectic taste in music. Um, I was wondering, has, has that been with you throughout your life? And what has been your relationship long, with music? Long, long across time. time. And... and uh, I think it's interesting to approach music in the same way as you would science, but even more valuable is a way to do something seriously that's non-scientific. And and I think that it it's good to kind of get your mind wrapped around stuff that are not the things that you work on, that you some sort of time sort of it's sort of like taking a vacation you re- reset your mind a little bit mm-hmm. and when you come back you have ideas that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise yeah and, and it it's something that i don't think we understand from a neuroscience standpoint but it's it's something that i know and yeah. other people will say yeah it happens is that you get away for a while and then you think better and you know if, if you talk to uh, people all have something like this most every scientist i've ever known that did really good research uh had something else that they did a lot of uh you know i have friends that uh have done you know in singing groups that sang gregorian chants and russian choral music and yeah uh, 
people that hate and people that you know ride bikes across the country and uh, do baseball statistics or and so I, I think you find a lot of that and that the, the sort of stereotypical science nerd that only does science yeah you, you do run into people like that but but more often they're people that have something else that they're have invested a lot of time and effort into that is important to them and, yeah and i think it's for me, it's just nice to have something that you're really serious about that's different. Definitely. And then it's just, there's so many things that are interesting that's out there. It's just cool to learn whatever you can about anything. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, being able to talk to the humanities people and things like that. Mm -hmm. What records or bands have you been listening to recently? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, totally improvised stuff oh wonderful yeah. and you were just mentioning that you're going to teach musical improvisation yeah, that's, that's, class. that's what's sort of gotten me yeah. back onto this is and, and uh, one of the interesting things is that there's there's a whole school of people that just go in with no preconceived ideas and they play together and the the organization that comes out of it is from listening to each other and reacting what to what each other are playing yeah but there's also a lot of other stuff that will will give you a chart or a set of rules or something like that and say, okay, you you can make up a lot of things, but you have to follow these certain guidelines. Yeah. And that that allows a structure for the piece to evolve. And comparing all these different ones and you know, how they is, is sort of a fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then I think it sort of leads into some really interesting questions in aesthetics. And, and, and some kind of practical things, like if, if the whole point is to make it up as you go, is it really right to record it and have it Interesting. be available to be played later? Yeah, because yeah. Because that's not what it was. Yeah, yeah. But then the other hand of that is I'd never hear any of this stuff because I'm not all over the world, you know, going and listening to these people. Yeah. And you could compare over recording. But there's this kind of philosophical thing about yeah. Yeah, it, it's not supposed to be permanent. But, uh, yeah, I, I do. I do improv a little bit myself, and that's the same. There's a different. There's a different feeling when you see the live performance versus when you record it. When you record it, it loses so much of that yeah. special quality. Yeah. But you know, maybe music is sort of an interesting case. Uh, do you have any specific recommendations for things you've been really into? I think the most interesting performer composer out there right now to me is a. John Zorn, and it's partly because he does everything. I think he released 15 or 20 CDs last year, mm -hmm. and they were all completely different types of music. And, wow, yeah. and, and he, he works with a, you know, a whole array of different musicians who he knows how they play and how to deal. And, and so he puts them together in different groups and does different things, and the, the quality even across all these different areas, which will be anywhere from total improvisation to lounge music to, you know, yeah. death metal to jazz is all good. Wow. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he also uh, runs a record company that records other people that he finds interesting. And with his whole eclectic version, it lets me, you know, yeah. just trust the label and 
look at descriptions of things and say, oh, yeah, you know, this is free-form Jewish wedding music. <laughs> and, uh, I'd like to hear what that sounds like. Absolutely, so you know, would I. <laughs> yeah, or, or this next one is, is you know, sort of, uh, you know, surf music uh, with space sounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, but it doesn't, it, it's it's not goofy. No, it's, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, it really is creative, I think. And uh-huh. was, uh, so I really like he he exemplifies sort of the the kind of stuff I've been interested in for quite a while. Yeah, but in a way, it's partly because he covers so much area, so that yeah, it's not a narrowed down yeah. example. It's a kind of everything's cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have a morning ritual? The one thing I found that's that. I think is really interesting is I naturally get up earlier on weekends than I do on weekdays. Really? Yeah. And, okay. and, and I think it's because I enjoy the mornings, but during the week I have something to do. So I don't have that time. And, and then the weekends I'm kind of looking forward to going out and just hanging out in the backyard and watching the birds and things like that. Yeah. I really enjoy those uh, the quieter moments in the mornings, you know, before everybody's up and before yeah. the day, is there some sort of message or thing you'd want people to know about, science in general i I think there there are two aspects so one of one of them is be for the public another would be to you know young scientists great uh, perfect the public and i think that the misconceptions about this are completely our fault as scientists but the public should realize that progress is not fast and we always tell them it's gonna be yeah and, and, and we shouldn't be doing that. It's, it's wrong, especially since, you know, they're paying taxes that pay for most of what we do. And we're promising things that we know we can't deliver in the time scale. It's, it's wishful thinking and it's yeah. optimistic, but it, it gives the wrong impression. And, and I think that, uh, that we need to do a better job at conveying the real process of, you know, we're not going to find a cure for Alzheimer's in 10 years. Yeah. You know? We might. Yeah. It's extremely low probability. Probably, sure. And we would take a lot of completely unknown things to happen. Yeah, yeah. And they could. You know, yeah. unknown things happen. But, yeah, but just to say that, look, you know, give us all this money and, and you know, we'll save your, your grandmother. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And it's just that impression comes across a lot of times. And, yeah. And as far as young scientists go, I, I think the main message is that, don't worry so much about picking the right thing to do for your career. Pick something you really want to do and you really want to know the answers to. And there's several reasons that's a good thing to do, but the main one is it provides the motivation to get through the tough times. Because research is tough. And, yeah. uh, and doing it well is really, really hard. And so if you really want to know the answer to something, you can put up with the frustration. And and if you're just doing it for some other reason, then it's really hard on yourself. Yeah. And, and I think to have high standards and be tougher on yourself than you are on other people in order to do good work. And like I said, it's hard to do good work. And you have to figure out what are all the weak points and what can I do that's better than this. You know, because you end up just doing stuff that doesn't matter much. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, you know, there's a lot of work that gets done that doesn't matter, but we don't know if it's going to matter or not because that's the way science goes. You, mm-hmm. know, the, the, you discover something and, you know, 10 or 15 years later, it leads to a whole new technology like you know, cloning. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Or uh, knowing that you're making unnecessary compromises in your work 
is something that we just just shouldn't do. You ought to try and, and you know, quality is more important than flashiness. Or and and if you don't believe that, if if you want to get famous or something, don't be a scientist. You know, I mean, I, certainly. I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I who here at this university? I'll bet that nobody could tell you the last five years of Nobel Prize winners. Nope. And, yeah. Even even in your field, you yeah. pick one area: physiology, and medicine. Yeah, and you don't get famous being a scientist. You know, no. you don't get powerful. You don't get rich. No. If you if those are the things you want, there's a lot better ways of doing it. And, yeah. And so you know, pick science because you love doing it and you want to find stuff out and you can't help but think that way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to wrap up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh man, actually. I wanted to hear about, I remember you telling a story about getting squirted with squid ink at one point. So if we can hear that story, we'll, All right, we'll put that in. Sir. Well, yeah. okay. So I spent the last year and a half of graduate school at Stanford's Marine Station in Monterey, which is great. It's, it's just right across from the Monterey Aquarium, although the Monterey Aquarium wasn't there at the time. It was an old broken down cannery. And okay, it was a hard place to do science because when the frustration happened there were seals you know right outside the window and you could just go sit on the beach and watch the seals oh yeah sea otters and birds and things and uh, it was sure a fun place to work and so they were catching squid and uh, we had them in some tanks out behind one of the buildings with recirculated seawater and all that sort of stuff and you know squid are, are quick they have really fast escape responses and so i was out there with uh, my advisor and i said i'll bet i could reach in and grab a squid <laughs> and he said no there's no way you could do that and so i said okay watch i'm gonna try and so i you know got ready and the squid are kind of shooting around in there i reached in and i got one and i yeah. pulled it up like this to show him and then just as i got it up next to the side of my head yeah. It just blew its ink right into my ear, <laughs> basically my eye and everything. And I didn't know until right that moment how viscous squid ink is. <laughs> yeah. And uh and just it was so weird because my reaction was I felt this, you know, kind of pow on the side of my head just at the time I saw the guy's face just go completely horrified <laughs> and watching me and then, and and the then he broke dark. out laughing after that yeah 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 and I couldn't see out of that eye on that side the other one was okay but it, yeah, God, it took me 45 minutes I think to wash it all off <laughs> you know? and, and it's a and it was a really weird feeling because it comes out really hard yeah and, and, you know you think here it is coming out in air you know the squid's never shot it oh, yeah. out in air before yeah before cell phone cameras were everywhere yeah right yeah now it would be instagrammed tweeted and yep. tumbled <laughs> <laughs> this was wonderful well we'll see thanks for listening the music you heard on today's episode is by Ballister, which is Dave Rempis on sax, Fred Lonbergholm on cello and electronics, and Paul Nilsson Love on drums. You can check out more of their music on iTunes, Spotify, or at their website, daverempis.com ballister. 
See you next time.